Hey guys, welcome back to Punching Sideways. Today's episode is with none other than local tennis legend Shane Reed. So Shane's legendary status in border tennis was actually earned off the court. Shane's the head curator of the Aubrey Grass Courts and also the Wodonga Tennis Centre. He's also the longtime president of the Bullio Football Club, so he's really entrenched in local sport. He's also an absolute champion guy. So this was a super fascinating chat. Shout out to Mel for making it happen. And yeah, I won't hold you up anymore here at the start. Let's jump into the conversation. So I know Shane from, well, he's married to one of my good friends growing up, Emma. And I didn't realise all the impressive things he did until after they got together, I must say. And then I was like, oh, that makes sense. That makes sense now. <laughs> That's how he got Emma because Emma's, Emma's Emma. That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> Shane, for those of us that are listening right now that don't know who you are, can you just sort of explain where you grew up firstly? Yeah, so uh, thanks very much for having me here today. I'm a, a local lad, grew up in Tulangata Valley, same as you did, Mel. So um Spent uh, my primary school years at Talanga Valley School and then went into Talanga High School, which became Talanga Secondary College. Completed that and moved into town and, and began uh, greenkeeping at the Wodonga Tennis Centre. And uh, that was back in 1995 and uh, still doing it back uh, in 2023. So it's been an extended period. So the greenkeeping thing, where did that come about? Had you always wanted to do it or had you sort of just fallen into it? Yeah, look, it's something I probably fell into, to be honest. Like when I was at home, it was like any kid loved mowing the lawns and stuff like that. But I certainly had no aspirations growing up to get into tennis, greenkeeping or anything like that. Um, I uh, first left when I finished year 12. I did a couple of months um, as a boilermaker welder and that just wasn't for me. You know, overalls in, inside the shed, stuck inside. <laughs> it was hot yeah. and it was horrible. I just hated it. So. Yeah. Uh, an apprenticeship come up at Wodonga, and just by chance I applied and was lucky enough to get the job at the time and uh, met some really good people along the way and then my career kind of grew from there. So I've been very fortunate that I did start at Wodonga and then was able to go to Sydney and over to London and back again. So, yeah, it's been phenomenal. So when you, when you talk about your career progressing, I don't feel like it's necessarily something that people would think there would be a progression for, mm. for greenkeeping per se, like from this area or anything like that. You're like, oh, you're just mowing grass basically. So how did it sort of evolve into the opportunities that we're going to talk about a little bit? Yeah, well, it's a really good point. And a lot of people in, in all jobs do get stuck you know, doing, you know, you know, in the one job and there's no, no, absolutely nothing wrong with that either. But, you know, I started and I always wanted to travel and, you know, there was always thought there was bigger things in mind. I love tennis, watching tennis. Um, so I was very fortunate. We had a tournament back in Wodonga in 1999 and uh, um, the courts at the time were pretty ordinary, to be fair. So we got in, uh, well, the club got in Murray McFarlane, who was a turf consultant who had worked at Wodonga from 1992 to 1995. But he was from White City. He was probably one of the first... Guys on an international level, he travelled all over the country doing consulting for Davis Cups and things like that. So Murray come down, oversaw 12 months to get our courts up for a, a big veterans tournament. We struck up a relationship, got on really well, and he said, look, why don't you come to Sydney and uh, work at White City? And at the time, he was doing Davis Cups all over Australia. So very fortunate to work at White City, which is very sad to see what's happened to White City now. It's very dilapidated, but it was the equivalent to Kuyong. You know, all the Davis Cups were played there. So it was great working there, but, you know, travelled all over Australia, Davis Cup, and then um, that's probably, you know, progressed further, you know, able to go overseas from there as well. So, sorry, was it Murray? Murray McFarlane, who is living back on the border now. Okay. But uh, if, if it wasn't for Murray and that tournament probably in 1998, <laughs> who knows, I may not have even be still in the game or been given the opportunity. So have. just if I've got the timeline right, Shane, you were only three years in at that point, mm -hmm. what do you think he saw in you specifically other – I mean, I'm assuming he was meeting lots of young, possibly even still apprentice greenskeepers at that point. What do you think it was that he saw in you that he wanted you to come and see these bigger opportunities? Oh, I guess he 
saw that someone was, you know, passionate about something that he was as well, um, you know, hardworking, you know, I'd like to think. But, uh, you know, we struck up a good relationship, you know, which is um, always half the battle, you know, yeah. when you work together and things like that. And, uh, you know, it's hard enough to find people in general that, you know, want to work outdoors. There's a lot of – it is a grind at times. It's hot, it's dusty and things like that. So he could see that <laughs> I was keen to do the work and, you know, would I like to go to Sydney? I, I said absolutely and, yeah, so – the rest is history, I guess. So we're in Sydney. You're in amongst all these athletes playing tennis. What was that feeling like being on a court with, or like having helped curate a court for some some of the athletes that maybe you'd been watching on TV? Yeah, it was a bit surreal. I think the first uh, event I was lucky enough to go along as Murray's sidekick was 1999 up in Brisbane. It was uh, – Australia versus Russia, so Leighton Hewitt was only 17 at the time, and he was playing Yevgeny Kothelnikov, who was number one in the world. Murat Safin was there. So, see, that was a packed house, semi-final, 13,000 people at ANZ Stadium. It was just phenomenal to see. You know, I uh, I loved it. I felt very fortunate to be there. Paddy Rafter was injured at the time, but he, he was there uh, as well. Wayne Arthurs played, Todd Woodbridge. So, yeah, it was just um, great to be part of every event that you work on, you know, particularly when it's uh, Davis Cup Tennis Australia, you're part of the team and uh, you're treated as such. And, uh, yeah, it's just a phenomenal thing. Any of the big tournaments are great to be involved in. What's your motivation? Uh, I, I do love the sport of tennis. Um, I love watching tennis, like I said before. But you always just try and try and improve on what you do. You know, like each year, you know, you'd like to think the courts are reasonable, but, you know, you're always thinking there's ways to do it better, you know. Has got hard, not harder and harder, but the standards for what players want now compared to 30 years ago are dramatically higher. You know, it used to be serve, volley, if there was a bad bounce, you know, it's grass, who cares? But now, unfortunately, most of the kids spend 95% of their time hitting on hard courts and synthetic. So if they do get a, a ball that probably plays the way it should, they, they think it's a bad bounce as such. Uh, they don't come to the net. So it's all rallies. So it is, the standards have been driven higher because of the type of tennis that is played. So you're always trying to improve. I enjoy it. And I get to work for myself outdoors. So it's not all bad, I guess. So you've brought up something that I was going to talk about later, but it's probably an appropriate time. Just, I guess, firstly, is there something specifically about grass courts that fascinates you? And with the baseline to baseline game and how much depth players are trying to play with now, Mm. I'm assuming, as you mentioned, the expectation that the actual baseline will hold up to a lot more athleticism and pressure and work is much higher for you than what it would have been in the past where people were moving around more of the court. Yeah, certainly in terms of the the wear to the court, now it's all focused on the baseline, like you said, so you do get a lot more traffic there. When they did the old style of tennis, when they were coming to the net, it was actually good for the court. You know, it would firm it up, play better. Um <laughs> You know, you see like a Jade Cole, for example, who's a local uh, gun player, he'll still play the old style, you know, the proper, yeah. <laughs> the way I the believe. Proper yeah. Well, the, you know, that, that style is uh, more conducive to grass court tennis. Um, in terms of have I got a passion for the grass? Yes, no, but like i just got a passion for my work and uh, a passion for tennis because I do enjoy it. Oh, nice. Let's talk who's on your wall at home. If you like us, like I like us, get onto punchingsideways.com, give us a bit of a likesy, have a bit of an exploration around and maybe buy us a coffee. Let's talk who's on your wall at home. Uh, well, it's probably, it got taken down recently when oh, the house no. got painted, but uh, yeah, Roger Federer uh, is my absolute hero. I was lucky enough to meet him in 2000 and three, the year he won Wimbledon, just to shake his hand and say hello, uh, which was pretty special. I'll never forget that. But I love Roger. I love the way he plays, love what he's done for the sport, on and off the court. He, he just he's epitomises everything you'd like to see in a sporting legend, but he's my hero. Now he, he doesn't play, I'll be honest, I, I don't watch it as much as I, I did because it, yeah, it, was, it was just everything that, uh, that I enjoyed watching. Let's talk about Wimbledon mm. now just because you've just brought it up. How did this little, like, tap on the shoulder happen? Like, how did you get from being just floating around Aubrey Odonga, maybe, like, travelling around Australia a little bit to heading over to to London and doing something as significant as Wimbledon? Yeah, look, 
the uh, well, the All England Lawn Tennis Club, Wimbledon, they take on um, three to six overseas groundsmen a year as t- on temporary staff. So I sent off a resume. You know, there's lots of other Aussies that have done it as well. Been fortunate enough to work there. Obviously, at the time, it had a tennis background, so it went favourably. Sent that off. Eddie Seward was the head groundsman at the time. Has unfortunately passed away uh, a few years ago. Uh, it was accepted, so went over and worked. 2001 had an absolute ball. It's an amazing place to work, but an amazing city. And then yeah, got invited back uh, the years after that. So it was, uh, yeah, great. I've mentioned it many times. It's just a great time in my life. I love working there. You know, you. You're based in London, Europe, but I, I, instead of travelling around, I, I was happy to go to work every day of the week. I just loved going there. I knew it wouldn't last forever in terms of my visa, so every day I could be at, at work. <laughs> I, you know, I just enjoyed being there, so it was phenomenal. So, you've obviously lived that life, so for you it felt more day-to-day and you obviously appreciated the experience, whereas I was telling Mel that, to me, there's a romanticism about Wimbledon, particularly that centre court, that- there's just a magic to that place. And to me, it's the most important piece of grass on the planet. And I was watching just randomly the new LG TVs at my work uh, showing pictures of the Novak Kyrgios final and the court just looks absolutely magic. So I've been thinking all week whether you would have that same romanticism. And I don't know whether Mel told you, but I'm a tennis nut. Whether you feel the same way having just been there on the ground or whether you still do when you see pictures of the court. Absolutely. I think it's the most special place in the world. I absolutely love Wimbledon. You see the the pitches, uh, it's it's phenomenal. One of my really good mates is the head groundsman, Neil Stubbley, phenomenal guy. Uh, It's incredible what he's gone on and done. And, you know, like from when I was there to now, like the courts and everything is just absolutely incredible. It's gone to an absolute another level. Like it used to be, I remember, you know, there'd be a match on on centre court and we'd be all sitting stuck inside watching a replay of Borg and McEnroe and you're just captivated by watching on TV <laughs> whilst you're at Wimbledon. You know, the history of the place is, it's unbelievable. Um, I think it's the most special tennis precinct on the planet. Um, I, th- I don't think many people would disagree, to be honest. What's your preference to play on? Uh, grass for sure. Just yeah. it's easier on the body. Like I'm not much of a tennis player, but uh, if I had my choice, I'd always choose grass. But just back to Wimbledon, um, I, if I got the chance to go back, which hopefully I do in the next few years, just to say good day, I would be just as excited, you know, the next time I went as I first went in 2001. You know, it's just that's, you know, it's that's how special it, that place is. Well, can I ask you a question about that? Just I had two questions. Mm. Which early match were you, I guess, primarily in charge of a court where the pressure was on, okay, this is basically my baby for X number of weeks or however months, many months it's taken to prepare it? And also, what is the, in your opinion, the most enjoyable match you've seen in person at Wimbledon? Yeah. Uh, first year, 2001, I did courts 11, 12 and 13. Mm. Uh, in 2002, I was fortunate enough I did centre court number one. That, that was a year late in one, so that was very special. Easily the best, most special match i seen at Wimbledon was Pat Rafter versus Andre Agassi. They played each other threes in a row. Rafter lost a quarter in 2000 and won two semis in five sets against <laughs> Andre Agassi. Absolutely phenomenal matches. And then to see Roger beat Philippoussis and then Roddick in three and four was pretty spectacular. So, you know, Henman had some massive matches against Goran in 2001, went over three days. So, mm. it's, like, best tennis players in the world. You're, you're going to see phenomenal matches, but they're certainly the ones that stand out. Okay. And in saying that, I think anyone who's really into tennis will know, and it happens a lot at the Australian Open in the first week, that some of the side courts that maybe people aren't paying attention to on the TV will often produce these just outlier, mm. absolutely incredible matches. So, you were on, sorry, courts 11, 12, 13, was it? Uh, well, having said that, you would- do the mowing and be responsible for that. But once um, that was all set up, all the permanent and temporary staff would go. To, we'd be on centre court. Right, okay. So, you know, you'd be responsible for court covering and stuff like that. So, you do the early preparations and then we, we would move. Uh, the, the majority would go to centre court and the others would head to court one and then there was court covers around the rest of the grounds. Yeah, because I was just wondering how involved you were on those side courts, for the lack of a better term, throughout the tournament or whether it's just set those and then let's focus on the main courts. Yeah, that, that's how it works, absolutely. So set up, I'm sure it's still the same over there now. 
they would have their guys do the mowing and marking and, and then they would head to centre court. <laughs> Everyone wants to be on centre court. It's yeah. just that simple. <laughs> it's funny. When we had Craig O'Shaughnessy on, who that was the first time that I'd personally yeah. heard your name, Shane, he said that you were somehow involved in an opportunity where he got to put the post in oh, on no, centre that, court. That wasn't you? No, that was uh, another guy. Actually, he started in 2002, Grant Canton, okay. and, he, and he was second in charge at the time when Craig did that, okay. put that put the nets up. So, he would be the only individual <laughs> on the planet in the history of the world that's put the, the net post in other than a ground start. Okay. So, that's pretty spectacular. <laughs> so, I guess where I was leading yeah. to is, did you ever have that opportunity? Uh, did you ever put, the, or on any of the courts at Wimbledon, did you put the net posts up? Look, Which they, might sound silly to people that aren't into tennis, but it's kind of like a special privilege at that particular event. Yes, there was certainly, like we're going back a long way, but there were guys that actually did that. I remember one day I thought I'll get involved and I think I nearly got pushed out of the way because <laughs> I think there was three guys that did set those courts, <laughs> centre court up in particular. So, certainly it was there plenty of times when it was going up, yeah. that's for sure. But um yeah, it's very militant, so well run. Uh, they do a phenomenal job. It's just like clockwork, amazing. You're talking about the prep. So can you just talk me through the actual prep? Like everyone yeah. likes watching the tennis, but the actual work that goes into to getting it to look like that, like are we talking you got to change the different types of grasses, like rolling, like do you test how – stable it is and have to add things to it like what what sort of goes into just on a base yeah level so like locally like Albury-Wodonga so so Shane's in charge of the Albury-Wodonga courts just in can you just quickly yeah. just check so I guess the 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 most important thing is to try and get a, an even coverage of grass uh, I've had my problems this year at Albury with how wet they were and things like that so it's probably not as uh, perfect as it normally is Get an even coverage of grass with as um, a limited thatch, which is organic material. So you don't want too much cushion between the actual grass and the soil. So you get your try and get your even bounce. So that, like once a year, should do a renovation, which is remo- thatch removal. I don't want to get too bogged down because people won't really understand no, what no, I'm no, talking about. No, audience actually likes this stuff. Yeah, yeah like the it. actual yeah. Yeah, 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 so, so having the uh, the thatch removal and uh, that's probably the the key. You know, have a 100% cover of grass, limited thatch, get your mowing heights down to around three or four mil. Yeah. And then, you know, you just got to keep on top of it. You got all your fungicides, pesticides, herbicides. So it is really intense. Albury and Wodonga, uh, I think I was saying to a friend of mine the other day, you know, they, they are really high maintenance grass courts because they're, they're just the original. They were just thrown together 50, 60 years ago. No drainage. The soil that was there is there. You know, it's, it all varies and it's just a common cooch. Yeah. Um, so you do have a lot of problems that other clubs who have rebuilt their courts and brought in new grass don't probably have the same sort of problems. So in terms of learning and, you know, all the situations have been put in with, you know, consulting or doing Davis Cups, you know, you, you kind of know a lot of stuff because of the grounding I've had here in Albury-Wodonga. But uh, it is very intense. You, you know, 12 months out, you should be looking at your renovations um, and then, you know, keep your mowing, watering and all that up, you know, up to date. But there is lots, you know, when you've got tournaments, we've got 15 days straight at Wodonga, which is a lot of tennis, uh, 150 hours of play, which, you know, there wouldn't be a soccer pitch in Albury Wodonga in 12 months to get that, you know, for example. So that, that's how intense it is. So you've obviously got to have a healthy plant health and, uh, you know, want them hard, but you still got to have enough watering so they survive the distance. So it is quite complex, but uh, the higher you go, uh, the, you know, the harder it gets and the more complex it gets. Yeah. Uh, so it's fascinating that you kind of mentioned in there that your skills base for dealing with problems hasn't come from these larger tournaments and worked down to Albury Wodonga. You're actually gaining knowledge here right on the border that mm. you're actually able to help theoretically bigger and better courts deal with. Like that's That's what I was thinking too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, look, people might say, Oh, that's a load of rubbish, but it's actual facts, you mm. know. Probably looking after the Albury grass courts has probably been the best learning that I've had through my whole experience because anything that can go wrong with turf, with couch, grass will go wrong there. So if I see it somewhere else, I'll I'll know because of that experience. And that's not being critical, Albury, because they're a phenomenal club and phenomenal courts. But uh, sometimes you can learn the most uh, at a smaller level and use that at the highest level. But, you know, there's obviously things I've taken, you know, you know, court construction and things like that from, uh, you know, building courts for Davis Cup and stuff as well that I wouldn't have had the experience locally, so. 
When you say, so 15 days straight of tennis, what happens at the end of each day? Do, do you have to cover it or like is it just depend? Like do you take the weather, like check the humidity? Is all that factor into what you're putting on the grass after the day or how does it sort of work? Because I am actually curious to. Yeah, look, it's a really good point. Like I've got two tournaments going at the moment. We've got the Australian Nationals 12s and 14s in Wodonga. We've got Margaret Court Cup in Albury. Uh, so after play, been lining service and baselines, uh, which is necessary. You know, we've, we spoke before about yeah. the wear and tear on the on the baseline, so that's necessary to do. Last night, I watered at Wodonga because we have such an extended period that we've got to play. But that is based on the forecast. If it was humid, no storms around, I wouldn't water. So in terms of covering, you know, fifty five courts, we don't have covers for, but a Davis Cup Wimbledon courts are covered regardless of a forecast and things like that. Uh, tonight I'll mow the courts in Wodonga, hopefully get enough time to get back and try and line the service and baselines at Albury as well. But, yeah, there's always plenty going on in the morning. If it was dewy, you've got to take the dew off. Uh, How do you take the dew off? Uh, there's there's dew brooms, uh, yeah. things like that. So you drag around behind a mower or walk it off. You know, all the wind it has been a bit frustrating for the players. And in Wodonga we've got the farcical situation with the pine trees blowing litter all over the courts. But <laughs> one thing it uh, it does, it, you don't have the dew in the morning. So, that, you know, there's advantages there as well. But you just got to try and make the courts strong enough that they can survive getting through that, that amount of tennis. You said before, Shane, that the Albury courts went down 50 or 60 years ago, or however long that was. With the Wodonga courts, are they? is that a newer base that you're working with there? Uh, Albury are older. I think it might have been in the 40s that they st- first started playing there. Wodonga, I think they're over about 55 years old, but um, probably the soil varies more at Wodonga and they're a bit more yeah, up and down. But- for people that aren't 100% familiar with mm. this area, mm. what? how far apart are they? 7Ks maybe? Yeah, 7Ks. And uh, they vary that much. <laughs> yeah, well, Albury, you know, probably got that black wickets, uh, river soil. So there is a difference there and Wodonga's, you know, where it is located. So just whatever soil was there originally, it's just had some grass put on top and <laughs> yeah. some fences put around it and that's what we got with. And so- when it comes to, it just sparked something in my mind. Is there, sorry, were these locations chosen for- convenience was the space available were they actually looking for a certain kind of soil look it's a really good question i, I don't know the answer to that in wadonga i think the the available ability of the land was the reason mm. um and i think that you know they started with a heap of uh, buckshot clay courts and then they said oh there's an area so they'd whack some grass down and went from there um the history of the albury tennis association is fascinating i'm not the right one to <laughs> explain it all but that that area was owned by a family they played tennis and they sold it to the association and so that was the family who started playing tennis there on that land and uh so i don't think they chose it specifically because of soil or anything like that but it is a great spot it's near the river uh, central albury uh, it's phenomenal really prize bit of uh, real estate land yes. <laughs> shane with the with the courts and because I I want to talk a bit more about all your other things that you do within the community because you're not just tennis, but is it just the fact that I shouldn't say just the fact, but there's things that are booked twelve months ahead that the potential for actually digging everything up and starting again is it a monetary thing or is it just more the the time and the resource to to facilitate these competitions that is stopping any sort of actual redevelopment of them? Yeah, uh, another good question. It, it's probably all of the above. Like the cost to do these things is huge, you know, construction these days. Uh, to do the required work would cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. But uh, also, you know, you've got a certain amount of comps on, you know, like if you were to um, take your courts out of action, you know, you've got to, a bit of income to make up and, you know, guarantee to get those players back. But, look, having said that, would I like the courts all laser level new grass? Um, absolutely. It would make life a lot easier. But, you know, the courts are still at a, a pretty good level that most people that come here, are, you know, that they wouldn't be thinking that they need to be ripped up and yeah. rebuilt. So would it make them 5% better? Probably. But, um, you know, for that amount of money and that time without grass courts, would that justify? Maybe not. So. And just one other, your your favourite journey that you've watched throughout the Aubrey-Wodonga courts of tennis. 
like people that you like you've been part of their journey and watched them sort of grow and get into bigger and better things per se. Yeah, look, it, Albury Wodonga has been a phenomenal breeding ground for tennis players. You know, like you go, you know, the sad passing of Rex Hartwick, you know, he grew up, played, well, he's from Colcan, but, uh, you know, he played down at the Albury Grass Courts, Margaret Court, you know, we had a phenomenal history with tennis. Obviously, Sam Groth, who just got into Parliament, which is very exciting for Grothy, uh, you know, seen him come through as a junior and then go on and make, you know, 53 in the world, which is, you know, a phenomenal effort. Um, Grothy's done so well for himself with his media as well. You know, locally, a guy like Mark Shanahan, you know, he's such a talent. You could watch him play at Albury and then, you know, he, he's so good to watch. You, know, you could watch him on TV the next day and think, you know, he's in the top 50 in the world. You know, that's just the quality that he brings, the style. Uh, so it's been great to watch him play. Uh, Colfie, another great friend of mine. He's won so many tournaments. Kenny Wirtz, he's obviously older than me, but what a champion. I think he's won nearly 100 titles all around the, you know, New South Wales and uh, Victoria. So to be able to see that and, you know, when tournaments and on, it's been, you know, a pleasure to, you know, sit down the courts, you know, with Shanners and Colfie, Cameron Maher and people like this and, you know, watch them play. And it really is. It's a great time of year. And uh, we're very fortunate to have those, you know, blokes that have, you know, supported our tournaments and played at such a high level. Okay, so Talangata Valley, you grew up Talangata Valley and you were a, a very big part of the re-initiation, I'm going to call, of the Bullio Football Club that was based around, or that is currently based there. What was the the reasoning behind that and, and is it a, a sport love? Like you just that much into sport and community that you just want to get everything going or yeah can you just fill us in a little bit on why that was so important to you yeah look i can't take any of the credit for getting the club reformed bluey campbell was the driving force behind that who he he got the club going along with his family um, people like roger burns and that were heavily involved i was actually in sydney at the time i did come home when they had their the big agm to, to decide that they were going to reform it so Look, there was a huge uh, push from the community uh, once, you know, Bluey had floated the idea and they did a huge amount of work to get it up and going. Um, I did play some games in 2002, three, and then, yeah, look, got heavily involved, become president. I was, took on vice president, I think, in five and six and then took on president role in 2007. So, look, my father was heavily involved uh, with Bullio. I don't know, it's just in the blood, I think. I just love it. You know, it, it's strange to have a president of the Bullio Football Club that lives in town <laughs> yeah. and, and travels back, you know, up to footy training on Thursday nights and I don't play anymore. But, look, you know, my mother the same. She loves it. My brother, my sister, Kerry. So, I don't know, it's just in the DNA. Um, you know, the club kind of means a lot to us, but it also brings a lot of joy to a lot of people. So, it's phenomenal to be involved and, you know, we've been um, really successful since we've been reformed, you know, on field, you know, we've won a lot of premierships. Uh, but probably the legacy thing, you know, we've got a new building, community building, which, you know, we all should be very proud of. I know myself, we work really hard to get that. Uh, we've got brand new netball courts as well up there. And that just doesn't happen overnight. You know, you've got to work around the clock to get that. You've got to raise money. You've got to get, get the uh, support from government, things like that. But, um, yeah, look, it's just a legacy thing and it's just so good that um, there's something going in Tlingata Valley. We don't have a school up there anymore. You know, all the kids go into town. You know, if it wasn't for the footy club, you just wouldn't see any of the local people, which would be quite sad, but it's just a meeting place and something I'm pretty passionate about that the valley needs something, the community needs something. So, you, I, I grew up in Koryong, so oh, okay. I, I did my football. I mean, I was never very good footballer yeah. and I wasn't really that big a football person, but- yep. We were in the Upper Murray Football League. Was that the league that Bullio first went back into or? Yeah, so Bullio previous was in the TDFL, yep. uh, Tulanga League, and uh, they won one premiership, lost a couple. And then at the late 70s, probably started to struggle with playing numbers and things like that. So they amalgamated with Tulangata to form Tulangata Valley. Several years later, they stopped playing at Bullio, which was, you know, there's reasons for, reasons against, which which is probably disappointing. It still should be Tulangata Valley. 
But uh, when we reformed, uh, part of the proposal, the only way that we could reform and enter a competition, we had to enter a different league, and the Upper Murray suited perfectly. So we're very fortunate, um, Gordon Nicholas and, you know, the people in the Upper Murray supported our bid, and um, it was blocked originally. I think Bluey and Burnsy went to Melbourne and took at the appeals, and it was overridden, and, uh, yeah, we won the right to join the Upper Murray, and 23, 24 years later, we're still going, which is great. I remember when it was all happening, it was quite exciting. I do remember, now that you've brought up Bluey and Burnsy, I do remember like all this stuff going on behind the scenes because I was still in Talangata Valley at the time and there was a lot of thoughts around, why are we having a football club here? We were like, there's one in town. Like, we've just, like, and it just didn't feel like it could be real, yeah. if that makes sense, because like I'd played tennis down there at the courts and that that felt like my hub at the time but the fact that I I think there would have been a lot of doubters there because I know even myself was sort of doubting like the potential of a place when there's you know everyone's already been playing Mm. you know half an hour down the road or anything like that the recruitment drive and everything like that like Bullio now to reflect upon whenever I talk to anyone that has played out at Bullio, they talk about it so fondly, like it's such a little community hub. Everyone gets all big, big hug around yeah. them, and that's obviously a big part of how the volunteers drive that. So you guys should be very proud of yourself. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, it's uh, it's look, we uh, pretty high on culture and standards and things like that, and. If you're you know part of the team, it's very welcoming, and that's something that uh, we're all very proud of. That you know, there might be the odd one that says bad things about Bullio, but that'd be like any club. But generally the feedback's uh, really positive. But uh, I know like early years, you know, they worked extraordinarily hard to get it going, but there was a lot of excitement, you know, and a lot of people jumped on board. But as the years progress, probably all clubs would, you know, find the same. It, it, it becomes harder and harder, you know, got to continually create excitement and uh, keep driving the standards to keep people wanting to come and things like that. So, but uh, yeah, amazing success story, you know, when country footy, you know, there's probably more clubs folding. I don't think there's many um, clubs that have reformed. So we're certainly well known for that. And uh, yeah, it's been a great success story. So did Bullio come back into the Upper Murray League with a netball team as well? Because I, I don't recall growing up whether netball and football were so closely aligned with the, I guess, quote-unquote football clubs mm. because that has happened over the last decade that uh, Federal were playing in the netball and Koryong had a netball team. I can't remember the netball teams growing up living in Koryong actually being tied into the club culture. Yeah, it's probably you to have a better idea than myself. But at the time when they first ended, I don't think there was netball yeah. associated with the uh, football clubs. That don't quite—I'm not 100 percent sure because I wasn't there. Mel would probably know better than me. Yeah. But I know um, certainly Bullio um, pushed hard to get netball, you know, to be reinstated and play alongside the, the Saturday comp football. Because I know Corrigan had a huge um, netball competition up there on Sundays. Reserves football was another one. There was no reserves football when we uh, entered the league and it's something we've, we've been really passionate about and pushed that and there's been reserves, I think, most of the years since we come into the competition. So, yeah, I think that, you know, having the netball with the football is a no-brainer and uh, it mm. certainly makes the day a whole, whole lot more enjoyable and, uh, you know, all the families and that there. So it's probably in certain aspects the netball has really driven the standards. Um, that's, that's how I felt being now away from the league, just from the media and the excitement around it and the pictures that I would see on social media, it just seemed like it'd become so ingrained yeah. in the day. And just from a, I guess, a lack of a better term, a practical point of view, if you were a family and you had children playing both or young adults playing both, you basically had to split your time and travel a few hundred metres between both. You didn't have the option to float around and watch everything in one place, which I think growing up in a country town is pretty important. Like, yeah. I don't think I would have seen my mates over the colder months and the wetter months in Koryong if it hadn't have been for playing football. Yeah. It was the main reason I turned up. I'm going to share. So, it must have happened fairly quickly because there wasn't long after Bully had started that I was playing netball with yep. Emma. And I remember, like, we were definitely underage. But there was just 
the fun around it, the fun and the excitement. And one thing that I will reflect on is how much everyone was all included. So there's other clubs that I've worked with and even if netball and football are happening at the same place per se, they still seem quite separate. Whereas this was a very much a we're all we're all in this. We'd all catch a bus to get because buddy, tumble f- rumba. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that was there, a trip. A, um, <laughs> the the Upper Murray League has a lot of distance involved to to travel. Like Bullier is very fortunate that it's quite close to out of town, but we'd all catch the bus up and catch the bus back, and everyone would just be in it together. And I just remember it was. It was such an inclusive little vibe where the netballers and the footballers were all sort of just hanging out in the – well, it was quite small then too. So there probably wasn't any other space at Bullio for us to be. <laughs> but, yeah, it was definitely all sort of working and the going up to the, you know, the Koryong people with two heads and everything was all an experience. We'd all <laughs> sit there on the bus and just be – Ready for what would what would happen? Basically. Yeah, well, I'd I'd left before Bullio were in, so I never got to make up a you know I never got to shade Bullio as a federal player. <laughs> no, it was it was, uh, it was a very a very good time, and I I can see though, like I've done a lot of volunteering too, and the volunteerism type thing, unless you're that like ingrained in you, it can become quite draining. That the same people sort of tend to do the the big roles and put their hand up for the jobs and it just sort of starts to become an expectation rather than appreciation sometimes or it can feel like that even though I think if you sort of maybe stepped away people would show all this glory and light on you and really like appreciate to your face but when you're in the grind of doing stuff and just trying to get stuff done it can sort of feel like that and I think you guys, from what I've seen, like you are still innovating. Like there's, they do the BNS now, so they've taken on from when the primary school, when I was there, we had the Stockman's ride. So that was a thing that was again, you had to raise money if you wanted to, to do things, and we got to do lots of things because we'd put in the effort. Like there was like ten sets of parents, and they'd make they'd put on the Tlingit Valley Stockman's mm. ride, which is a big event. Yeah. And generate all this money. And because of that, we got to go and have these massive trips that the parents never had to pay for because school just paid for it. And then Bullio is now putting on the BNS. They've taken over the Stockman's ride. The amount of effort that must go into getting those things to work, they, are, you, they can't just be you. There's a, there's a big driving force behind that. Would you like to sort of just paint a bit of a picture about how you feel about the people maybe around you that are really still making it. Maybe it's not an easy job to be president, but <laughs> or maybe it's just that you're the only one that hasn't been able to find a replacement for yourself because that's the, usually the way <laughs> that it goes. Yes. If you don't, um, I saw that happen at the Bandits. I think Steve Wright did a couple more years than he was initially planning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, finding a president of any club, you know, not just Bullios, Tough, and I've got the utmost respect for anyone that puts a hand up and does the job because um, it can be very, very challenging. Look, the job at uh, Bullio is very rewarding. The off-season um, events, like you mentioned, the Tulling Valley Stockman's Ride and the BNS Ball, probably you know that do make the, the job a lot bigger than your your standard football club because you know running major events outside of a footy season. But uh, having said that, you know they're the reasons. We've got a new building, a new netball courts. The money we've raised from those events, you know, is the reason that we've been able to put up, you know, large amounts of money to uh, get the funding that's required from state government and such. Uh, in terms of the, the volunteers, you know, the, there's so many. I won't not try to name any because you always forget someone and, and you, um, you know, you offend people. I've learnt that over a long period. But, you know, we have a great volunteer base. We have a great club, a strong club. The uh, Stockman's Ride, uh, there was over 80 volunteers for that event. Actually, my wife, she organises the rosters, does an amazing job. But if it's, if people will always put their hand up if they're asked and it's organised, you, you know, if you try and organise things last minute, can you do it? It, it won't work. But uh, if you're organised and grateful when people do show up, like people say there's no volunteers out there anymore, 
which I'm sure there's less, but if, if you're organised and ask these people early, can you help for an hour, two hours, five hours, I generally find most people will still put their hand up. Uh, the BNS ball is similar. You need about 80 to 100 people to run it. But look, it's not everyone's cup of tea. It is a different event. I, I'd never been to a BNS until we started hosting our own. But uh, a lot of people enjoy it. It's fun. It's something different. So, uh, can you tell me about the conversation around getting that happening? Because I also had never been to a BNS <laughs> until I was part of it. How did it get pitched? And yeah. Like it, it's it's not the usual sort of thing that you would like. It makes sense that Stockman's right. It's already happening there, yeah. and that's just taking that on as a. But to put on a BNS is a. Is firstly, it's a big gutsy. Yeah. Step. Look, it's um for for years. Actually, I was cleaning out a drawer the other day, and I was going back through the minutes of a meeting, and you know, for years it was stating, you know, we need to find fundraisers away from you know sponsor, you know, need different money coming into the club. Uh, so, you know, it would always come up, you know, we need a new idea, a new way to raise money. Uh, Pete Patton, Claude Patton and Libby, they floated the idea yeah, uh, 100%. Okay. Uh, Pete, I think it was a bit of an avid uh, uh, BNS goer. Yeah, so, um, that makes sense now, yep. He, uh, he brought it to the committee, um, Libby and Claude uh, as well. Like I said, it was a gutsy move because, you know, first up, you you're thinking you've got to come up with 20 grand. I was going to say outlay yeah, initially. to host it. That, that's minimum. You know, like if no one shows up, you're going to lose 20 grand. So people were hesitant. I always thought it would be a winner. So I was happy to go along, you know, with the suggestion that we should have a go. Yeah. I think John Campbell ran a BNS or was part of a BNS out at Holbrook as well. They started one up. So he was someone that we spoke to as well. And we just thought, well, why not? We'll give it a go if, you know, we come up short. And I think we've hosted four or five. I can't remember the exact figure. We've had the last few years cancelled from COVID, but uh, we've made money every year. It's been a great event. Uh, we've had touchwood. No one gets seriously injured or anything like that, which is always a concern because it is different. But yeah, gutsy move, and, and congratulations to everyone that you know put their hand up to be involved with it. It's, it's uh, no, it's it's been good. I would say from a like it's like going to the zoo <laughs> and. Like all the animals, like talk to you. Basically, <laughs> it's like you you haven't paid to get in, but you're there and you're working in amongst them. And I, when I say that, I actually say that with utmost respect because I will say the amount of people that go to a BNS. If you had that group of people together in Aubrey or anything like that, the amount of fights and everything and trouble that you would have would be ridiculously high whereas when in my experience yes there's been like the odd troublemakers but they're all very polite to you they're only there to really have fun and blow off a bit of steam yes you have to obviously manage it per se but I was very surprised personally of how well-mannered everyone was, which is not my experience when I've been around big groups of people in sort of metro type areas. Yeah, I think there's a general feeling when you're at the event that uh, people are very grateful that you've you've put it on. Um, you know, like we try and put the best event on possible and, and do everything right. So you'd like to think that they've come along and they've had a good time, but they are generally always very grateful, like Mel said. It's a different crowd, but they're happy to be there. They have a, have a good weekend. Um We've got it coming up the last Saturday in uh, February again this year, so we, we need to pump it up and get you know we need to get at least five hundred people along to that to uh, make it worthwhile. So hopefully it'll be a big success. We haven't had it for a couple of years because of COVID. So yeah, we look forward to um, yeah hosting a great event in February. So we might just bring basically bring it back into town. Where do you see local tennis heading? either from your role or just in general, and what has you most excited about tennis around here at the moment? Um, to be honest, COVID has been pretty hard on Aubrey Wodonga Tennis. Um, 2018-19 season, tennis on the border was in a great shape, but certainly it has knocked numbers around. Um, Saturday pennant in Aubrey is a concern. You know, it's been such a strong competition for, you know, However many years, you know, you go back 50, 60 years, all the grass courts have been full. So it's something we need to work hard to, you know, try and get players back to work in that, uh, to play on Saturday. 
the introduction of night comp or twilight comps in Wodonga has been really successful um, with their Tuesday night men's comp and the uh, Thursday night twilight. Uh, what's got me most excited? Hopefully, you know, just a continuation. I'm, I'm just so big on um, improvements to facilities. You know, like, you know, Wodonga is such a phenomenal facility over there, but it, it needs more money spent, you know, but there's talk that, you know, we may come into some funding in the next, you know, two to three years uh, with, you know, upgrades to fencing and stuff like that, just really tidied up some, some things with the uh, clubhouse as well. We're very fortunate. Uh, we've got Trish Moore running the uh, Albury Tennis Association at the moment. She's down there doing some phenomenal things. If you went down to the Margaret Court Cup today, it's a hive of activity. So there is some great things happening, but we, you know, it's like any sport. You just need to work hard. Whoever works the hardest, sporting clubs, you get the best results. It's that simple. You know, If you sit back and expect people to turn up, it just doesn't happen. So hard work, and uh, hopefully we can keep it going for many years to come. So do you have your eye? on a young apprentice that you're going <laughs> to mentor the way Murray mentored you? Is there someone that you are looking at? You don't have to name them, but uh, is like- got his ha- son, Will. Oh, yeah, there no, you go. Hopefully, Will is, is smarter than his father and goes <laughs> on and gets a- uh, Becomes a doctor or something. Uh, university degree or something after <laughs> school. But uh, uh, look, it's probably my biggest downfall is that I haven't uh, gone down that path and in- employed an apprentice. Um, because the work's so seasonal, it, it does make it hard- you know, winter time to try and carry staff through. So that's so. I know I haven't got any one earmarked, but uh, yeah, like I said, it's probably my biggest downfall that I should have taken someone under my wing and trained them up, and you know, probably worked as hard as I have because it is starting to get a bit uh, challenging. But uh, anyway, we, we, who knows what's around the corner? So I just want to reiterate now just the magnitude of what you've just said. So you've got Emma at home, you've got Will, little boy, Poppy. A beautiful little family, and you just really just reinforced to me the fact that you do the majority of this yourself. Mm. Like if if anyone's sort of driving around this area and has a look at the magnitude and the size of the courts and the amount of stuff that's going on, for one person to be like not a team scenario, that's that's massive. So you've like Emma and the kids at home, they're your own little team as well because I know – Emma often talks about, oh, you're off to Darwin or you're off to doing all these things. She must be a, a massive supporter of you and that probably wouldn't be able to happen if you didn't have her yeah. at home. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, Mel, cut you off. That's right. Nah, she's been amazing. Support, you know, like all the travel and things like that uh, done over the journey. She's always supported that and, uh, you know, it's been amazing to have that support. You know, with the, the tennis club, you know, having these two, two events – and like I said, I probably do do 80, 90% of it myself, which, you know, it's probably crazy, <laughs> really. Yeah. But, you know, you look at uh, the phenomenal success with the Big Bash at the Lavington, you know, you know, the ground was yeah. phenomenal, the pitch, you know, but four hours cricket, all the resources, money, everything that was spent, you know, to get that up for four hours. And then, you know, we've got two, you know, two facilities, Wodonga, you know, 150 hours compared to four. Yeah. And, you know, the, so it- Probably. The amount of people that are coming to stay in yeah. the area for that really needs a bit of reflection, hey? Yeah, like at the moment in Wodonga, the uh, the national, so, you know, people, the best junior kids from all over the country, and they've come from Perth, um, every, you know, it's, so it's both parents coming, the brothers, they're in town, so all the motels are full, you know, the Margaret Court Cup, we've got um, 10 different nations represented, you know, playing at an event. So it is big, huge for the community. You know, you just hope people would, you just wish, you know, people would support it more in terms of not so much councils, but, you know, motels and things like that. You know, I know we can't have the event without the people having that accommodation, but, you know, like it wouldn't be, you know, a sign on a fence or something like that for, you know, a motel that's always full because of tennis at this time of year wouldn't be the, you know, a hard, hard ass I wouldn't have thought. I think it, there needs to be a bit of a reflection on the, the bigger picture. So it's not just the tennis courts that would benefit it it's the greater community yeah. really and if you if you're on council right now and i know a few people on council <laughs> uh and again like you know things don't happen quickly you might have the best new councillors or committee or something come through but it doesn't mean that an idea won't be um immediately accepted there's a bit of a grind sometimes that comes with innovating and changing what we've always done per se 
Yeah, like, like I said, the biggest um, hold-up for assistance down at the grass courts is the fact that the, the land is privately owned. So I fully understand that, but it's, um, you know, if we do lose that facility, for example, you know, Albury, you know, we just lose our identity as a tennis, you know, a town, you know, because everything that's associated with tennis in Albury is based down there. We have some great other clubs in town, sure, but in terms of the capabilities of hosting major events, they don't come close because they're so small. So we just need facilities of that magnitude to survive. Righto, mate. Well, thank you, Shane, for spending some time with us today. I know given that the fortnight that this interview fell in, you couldn't probably be any busier than you are right at the moment, so we appreciate the time. I'm sure our audience does as well. And I do have one last question. You said you're not watching tennis as much. Is there a young player on the tour, the professional tour, male or female, that has you excited and actually has you turning the TV on every time they're playing? Well, there was, and she retired too, and that was Ash Barty. So, um, look, I couldn't – look, everyone loves watching Rafa. Um, I'm not a Novak fan at all. Um, I hope he doesn't win the Australian Open. But, yeah, I, I couldn't name – one that stands out, to be honest. I'd be just as happy to go down and watch the kids play today uh, and, you know, I'll sit back and enjoy that. But, yeah, Ash Barty, absolutely. She was phenomenal, but uh, she's out of the game and she's expecting her a, a, a first child, so that's exciting for her. That's amazing. And I am a Novak fan, so this episode's mm. not going out now. <laughs> <laughs> that was the, the close bond between uh, Craig and Josh was the Novak link there and yeah. and it was very interesting talking strategies and stuff like that with Craig and I appreciate his time as well but I absolutely appreciate your time this for anyone listening has been probably more than a year coming I would say I've occasionally in crossing paths with Shane I've just mentioned that I do something like this and I would like to talk to him I don't know whether he thought I was serious or not and then <laughs> we were going to do something and then he was busy and then I've probably would have been a good opportunity for you to be too busy now but i really appreciate you making the effort so that we can get this out and people can know how impressive (laughs) you are and you're right here on our doorstep thanks very much thank Uh, you mate cheers thank you